Um, but yeah, one of the, uh, the responsibilities of an elder is, is, of course, to teach, and we are in the middle of a series on God's sovereignty, and by God's sovereignty, I was scheduled to teach today, so that, uh, that all worked out really nicely. Um, today, we are looking at God's sovereignty in suffering, um, and I'm glad to walk through this topic with you, but, but it is a heavy one, right? Um, I, I would think it would um, you know, stir some emotions. And uh, so I want to be, be cautious and sensitive. Um, at, at the same time, I want us to, to recognize that over, over the last three years, it's, it's been really weird, right? I mean, since COVID hit, um, there's been a lot of suffering, a lot of struggle in some different ways, some new ways that we've faced. And um, I've lost family members to COVID. We've, we've all lost people and, and we've, we've lost jobs. We've lost businesses. There's been um, relational divide over, over culture and, and politics, and now we have economy issues and inflation, and like, it seems like it goes on and on. And this is not new to our world, right? I mean, we, we experience suffering through, throughout all generations, and there's going to be something else right around the corner. And so, as a church, I want us to, to be careful to learn together how to look at suffering and then how to trust God in our suffering. And so that's really what, what today is about. So my, my family, uh, we're big superhero movie fans. We watch all these over the last 15 years. There's been several dozen superhero movies that have uh, hit the market. And uh, one in the last few years that came out that was an interesting one is uh, Batman versus Superman. Some of you have seen it, I'm sure. Uh, because you have two heroes fighting against each other. But at the center of that movie, you have the, the, the old supervillain Lex Luthor who is uh, stirring the pot and stir- pitting these guys against each other. And the reason I bring this movie to mind is because there's a speech in the middle of the movie where Lex Luthor is talking to Batman. That is such a silly thing, but he is talking about God. And it's so strange to see our culture put a movie out there and, and, and talk about God this way. And uh, what he's actually doing is repeating an old philosophical problem that, that dates back centuries about the problem of evil and suffering in our world. And so the way Lex Luthor says it, the way he presents it, which is, is actually really good, he, he says, uh, if, if God is all good, then he cannot be all powerful. And if God is all powerful, then he cannot be all good. And again, the writers didn't come up with this, right? This is a centuries old debate. And, and what the heart of the debate is, basically, we look around the world, we see suffering, and so we think, well, if there is a God and He's all-powerful, then He has the power to stop it. But I guess He doesn't stop it because He doesn't want to. He's not all good. And, of course, the other side of that argument is, is to say, well, God is good and He wants to stop all this suffering that we see, but He must not be able to. He's not all-powerful. And so you see the philosopher's problem there, the logical problem of evil and suffering. And, of course... I think the, the philosophers and Lex Luthers or whoever struggle with this problem because they just don't know the God of the Bible. Um, we're going to look at the Lord and be, be confronted with the Lord's goodness and the, the Lord's power and the Lord's sovereignty all together. And so this morning we want to talk about the Lord as He is revealed in the book of Job. And there's really no better place for us to learn about God's sovereignty in suffering. So go ahead and turn to Job chapter 42. That's gonna, we're going to spend the majority of our time in the first six verses of Job chapter 42. 
I'm going to give a brief overview of the book of Job. In fact, some of you, the first time, I, I think I, I thought this, um, when you first open the Old Testament, you're looking through the names of the books, you see there's a book named Job. It's not Job, it's Job. Um, that's, that's what we get when we, we translate Hebrew into English. And uh, so the, the book is, is about a man named Job. And Job is, is blameless and upright. He feared God. He turned away from evil. Um, the first two chapters of Job really tell Job's stories. But it also takes us into the heavenly courts. And we see God point out Job's faithfulness. And Satan comes to the forefront and he says, Look, look Lord, look God, he is, he's only faithful because you blessed him. You remove these things from him. And he's going to curse you. And so Satan is allowed by God to remove things from Job. He takes away his wealth. He takes away his children. He takes away his health. And Job is left in ruin wondering what in the world is going on. Job doesn't sin in this. He doesn't sin against God. And, and he is, remains faithful. But Job has friends that come to him. Those friends sit with him. And... Uh, they, for about 35 chapters, they criticize Job. They, they ask him, Job, what have you done to deserve this? Because the, the principle that's being, being kind of fleshed out here is what's known as the principle of retribution. It, it's very simply the idea that God is going to bless people who do good things and he's going to curse people who do bad things. And that's what Job and his friends believe about God. And so Job's friends keep saying, Job, what did you do? And Job says, I'm I'm innocent. And, and the further the book goes along, the, the more Job declares his innocence. And he gets to the point where he says, I, I wish I could stand before God and, and ask God some questions and, and, and tell God what's going on because something's, something's not right here. God's not playing by the rules or something. And Job is, is wanting to confront the Lord and ask some questions. Well, when we get to Job 38, um, it's God that asks the questions. And if you've ever read the book of Job... Man, it's, it's one of the highlights of the book when, when God confronts Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, it's a, it'll give you chills just, just getting into that, that chapter. And for four chapters, God asks Job's questions and challenges Job, Job's understanding of the universe. He challenges Job's understanding of, of justice and power. And Job is just silenced under the weight of God's questions. And we feel that as, as readers. And so when we get to chapter 42, we actually see Job's responses to God. And in his response is repentance. It's repentance about the things he said. And then he ends up being comforted in the midst of his suffering. And so Job, Job learns an important lesson. He learns that comfort does not only come through the removal of suffering, but through trusting in God's rule over suffering. And so brothers and sisters, this morning I want us to be confronted with the greatness and the sovereignty of God from Job's story so that we can find comfort in the midst of our suffering, both now and in the future. And so the question for this morning is very simply, why should we trust God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering? Why should we trust God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. So let's look to the text. Let's look to Job chapter 42 and see Job's response to the Lord's questioning. Verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first, I want us to point out here that that we should trust that God's good purposes will be fulfilled through our suffering. We should trust that God's good purposes will be fulfilled through our suffering. I want us to focus in on verse 2 here. Notice what Job says. I know that you, talking to God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, I love that word thwarted. That's not one we use very often, is it? I think we should bring it back, right? Like, thwarted just means to hinder. It just means to stop. There's no going around God's purposes, right? And that's what what Job is saying. But really the word I want us to look at is the word can. Because can has a couple of different, different nuances to it. I think the first thing we see when Job says, I know you can do all things, is that God is able to do all things. I think that's the, our natural understanding of that word, can. God, I know you are able to do all things. But you know, can also means could. I did a little, little word study on, on the Hebrew word here, and, and it means a lot of different things. One of them is could. Like You could do all things. You have the right to do anything you want to do. It's a different nuance of that word. I know that you are able to do all things, Lord. I know that you have the right to do all things. And we need to see in Job's confession that God is in control. He can do whatever he desires, but I want to be careful here to say that God only acts in a way that's consistent with his goodness and with his character. He is good, and what God does in and through our suffering will always be consistent with his goodness and his purposes. And this is what Job is explaining. So we not only trust in what God is able to do, we trust in what God has the right to do as God. And we, like Job, are forced to bow in humble submission to him, knowing that he's God, even when we have to walk through intense and confusing times of suffering. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in a verse that we're very familiar with, Romans eight twenty eight, he reminds us that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. But Paul's not the only one who, who mentions this. I want us to look at, at the book of James, James chapter 1. And that's, the verse will be up here on the screen. This is one I talk about a lot in our community group. Our community group, if there's any members here, they're probably like, Ben, stop talking about James chapter 1. But it's so relevant, right? Listen to what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that perfect and complete lacking in nothing is not talking about sinless perfection there. It's talking about a right relationship with God in which we look at our lives and we say, I've I've got the Lord, I don't need anything else. That's what we want to be, perfectly content, complete, lacking in nothing. I want to be there. I imagine you want to be there too. But look at the path. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Often God's purposes are to lead us through the trial, through the suffering, to get us to that point. He is able to and he has the right to use any means necessary to bring us to that kind of perfection. And and James, of course, tells us it's often through trial. So we should trust that God's good purposes will be fulfilled through our suffering. But secondly, we should trust that God knows, he knows our suffering And he works through our suffering in ways that we cannot understand. I want us to look at uh, at Job 42, verse 3. Now, This is interesting how this is set up because the first part of the verse, Job is actually repeating the question that that God asked him earlier in in chapter 38. So Job is, is repeating the question that God gave to him. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now, this is a very poetic and and kind way of saying, who's the ignorant fool that's questioning my wisdom? Okay, a much kinder way to say that here. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? And so Job responds to God's question here finally, and he says, I've uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job admits that he did not understand what he was saying when he questioned God about the reasons for his suffering. You know, and I imagine, like, like many of us, that Job thought that he would be faithful to God through any circumstance. And when times were good, that was probably easy to think. But when suffering came, he began to question God's wisdom and God's justice. In Job 19, and we won't turn there, but I make a note of this. Job 19, verses 6 and 7, he says, Know then... That God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. When Job lost his wealth, his children, his health, he couldn't understand it. And I'm sure he found himself thinking about things that uh, he probably never would have thought before. Started saying things about God that he never would have imagined saying before. And, And I want us to be careful when we think we know more than we really do about God's purposes for our suffering. We can fall into asking the wrong kinds of questions. And in our arrogance, we, we might even begin to say things like, Lord, if I were in your position, I would do it a different way. I wouldn't bring about this suffering. We have to be careful that we don't question God's goodness or God's wisdom or God's justice. For four chapters here, God shows Job all about the things that he doesn't know, but he never explains the reason for his suffering. He points out, Job, you just, you just don't understand. But he never gets to explaining Job's suffering. Now listen, we can ask the Lord why. I'm not saying that, that, that you can't ask the Lord why. When, when suffering hits, pray and ask the Lord to show you why. Show you, show you his purposes. He, he, he might reveal it to you. But ultimately, we must admit that we can never see or understand things from God's perspective. That's where we have to trust. Do you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis? Amazing story, right? Takes up the last half of the book of Genesis. Joseph was, was sold into slavery by his brothers. Can you imagine anything worse? And then he gets sent to prison, being falsely accused, gets sent to prison. And then the friends he makes in prison forget about him when they get out. I mean, Joseph's story is is tragic. 
But God, through sovereignty, through his sovereignty and his power and his control and his goodness, he moves Joseph into a place of power. And at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph looks at his brothers and said, The act that you meant for evil, God meant for good, which ultimately was the salvation of the people of Israel. And we look at that and we go, how can that be? How can a human act, a sinful, evil human act that was meant for evil, how can God also be acting in that to bring about good? God meant it for good. He meant the evil act for good. That's God's sovereignty. right? That's why we're going through this series, is to talk about how God sovereignly controls and acts in all things. And so we need to trust that God knows and works through our suffering in ways that we simply cannot understand. Now, finally, in the text here, verses 4 through 6, we should trust God's goodness even when our questions about suffering go unanswered. We should trust God's goodness even when our questions about suffering go unanswered. Let's read 4 through 6. This is set up the same way as verse 3. Verse 4, Job is presenting to us the the question uh, that God asked. He said, Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. That's what God said to Job. And then Job responds in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Remember that I mentioned earlier that Job wanted to question God. He wanted to go to God and plead his case. And of course, God didn't allow that. But he wanted to explain himself. He wanted to have the opportunity to, to explain his innocence. But God doesn't let him do that. And instead, God questions Job. And an amazing thing happens. Job begins to see God again. When God Ask Job these four chapters of questions. Job begins to see God. That's what he says. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. And when we think about suffering and, and pain, obviously, when we first encounter pain, and you know this if you've ever hit your, hit your thumb with a hammer or stubbed your toe on a, on a table or something, like that's the only thing that matters in that moment. We're very focused on the pain, right? It hurts. But what happens to Job is he begins to lose focus on the Lord because he's focused so much on his suffering. And he becomes more and more confused. He even begins to to think, and we do this too, think about the good old days. Like the days when, when I, before I experienced this suffering, how great a man I was, is what Job begins to think of. In, in Job uh, chapter 29, he talks about this. The whole chapter is him reliving the days before this suffering came into his life. And he becomes more and more demanding in his questions to the Lord. And he really does believe that if he could just stand before the Lord, if he could just explain himself, that God would see the mistake and correct it. Look at Job chapter 23. I want to see, show you an example of this. In Job chapter 23, verses 1 through 7, it says, Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. He's talking about God there. Where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me. 
and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Now in chapter 42, Job is saying, never mind. I, I, I don't know what I was saying. I didn't understand what I was saying. I had heard of you by the, by the ear, but now my eyes see you. Now the amazing thing that happens here is that Job stops focusing on his suffering. And he starts again focusing on God. Job now sees the Lord and has a greater understanding of God's greatness and God's knowledge and God's wisdom and God's justice. Job gains a greater understanding and what he realizes, and this is such an important lesson for us, Job realizes that it's better for him to know God than to know the answers to his questions. That's a, that's a big shift in our thinking, right? Because we want to know the answers to the questions of our suffering. Bottom line is that we should trust God's goodness even when our questions about suffering go unanswered. Now, now don't miss this in Job 42, the last verse here. Verse 6. Job says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, that phrase, that Old Testament phrase, dust and ashes, is, is a way of, of powerfully illustrating being brought low and being humbled. All right, so Job is humbled here. But the thing that I want you to focus on is the word repent. And in your Bibles, you may have a little note next to the, the word repent. If you look down at the bottom of the page in the footnotes, it says it also could be translated am comforted. Now, it's interesting if we put that word in here, Therefore, I despise myself and am comforted in dust and ashes. It, it changes the, the meaning a little bit. But I don't think it has to. And I want to show you where this word is used in verse 11. The same word that is used in verse 6 for repent is also used in verse 11 and is translated comforted. Now, now to kind of connect the, the gap here for us, after Job repents, God turns his attention to Job's friends and he says, Hey, you said some bad things too. You need to repent. And, and I'm going I'm to get you to go to Job and ask Job to pray for you as an intercessor. And then, then I'll, I'll forgive your sins. And so Job's friends are forced to go to Job and say, hey, man, we, we were wrong. And we need you to pray for us so God will forgive. And so that's what we pick up in verse 10. Look at Job 42, verses 10 and 11. And I want to show you this word, comforted. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now don't get distracted by that word evil. I know that sounds weird when it says the Lord did something evil. That just means the disaster that the Lord brought upon him, the bad things that God allowed in his life. It's not sinful kind of evil here. But I want you to focus on the word comforted. They showed him sympathy and comforted him. That's the same word that's used in chapter 42, verse 6, for repent. Now when I do this kind of thing in our, our community group, my group looks at we're like, okay, Ben, we get it. They're the same word. Like, where are you going? Okay, why, why all the emphasis, right? Well, it's because there's great comfort in repentance. But that's not a connection that we make naturally, is it? We usually think of repentance 
in, in kind, of a, kind of a negative light. That's, a, that's a, a, not a comforting thing, but it is. And I want you to think about when you first trusted in Christ, when you became aware of your need for a Savior, when you became aware of your sin, and you expressed faith in Christ, and you repented, what happened? Like you were forgiven. And after you were forgiven, you experienced comfort and the peace of God. That repentance brought about comfort and right relationship with God. And that's exactly what we see happening in Job's life. Therefore, I despise myself and repent and am comforted in dust and ashes. And I think to the point that in verse 11, when Job's friends come around him to comfort him, I don't think he needs it at that point. He is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing because he knows God. And that's what the suffering had brought about in his life. Job learned that comfort in suffering doesn't only come when the pain is removed. Comfort in suffering comes when we repent of our doubts about God, about His goodness and about His wisdom. And we repent of all these foolish and arrogant questions that we ask God. Comfort is found in that repentance. Comfort comes from trusting in His sovereign rule in our suffering. Listen, folks. Suffering's not going away, right? And we've dealt with a lot over the last few years, but there's something else around the corner. There's, suffering's always going to be in our lives. And so trusting God and learning how to trust in God in our suffering is vital for us. But you know, even though suffering's not going away, it's always going to be with us, there's this huge promise in Scripture about someone who will be with us. Remember Matthew 28, the Great Commission? Jesus says, go and make disciples, teach and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the command, right? But at the end, in verse 20, Jesus makes a promise. He says, behold, I am with you. Yes, suffering's with you. That's not going away. We live in a sinful world. But Jesus is with us. He is always with us. And so I want us to grab hold of that promise. And I want us to ask ourselves, do we believe that God's good purposes can be fulfilled in our suffering? Do we believe that God knows our suffering and is working in ways that we cannot understand? Do we believe that we can trust in God's goodness even when our questions go unanswered? Well, see, the reason we can believe those things is because Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning and is always with us. We can trust God in the midst of the suffering. Now, one of my, my favorite verses is John 16.33. John 16.33, Jesus is talking to his disciples and, and he says, in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. In other words, be encouraged. In the world you'll have tribulations, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Some of you know that verse. You're shaking your head. I see you, right? It's a powerful verse. In the world you're going to have tribulations, but take courage. Take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus suffered under God's sovereign rule. Think about that. God ordained that Jesus would go to the cross, that he would be crucified by Romans who were the enemies of God's people, that he would suffer and die and be betrayed by his people. 
God ordained all of that to happen for our good and for His glory. He has overcome the world. He didn't stop at the cross, right? He was resurrected and now He is overcome. And He is our advocate. He is the one who is with us in our suffering. He has overcome the world. And so I want us to take some time this morning to process this, but also to pray for one another. Maybe you've been through some times of suffering recently. Maybe you've lost your focus on the Lord, very much like Job did. Maybe you've questioned God's goodness or His wisdom or His justice, and you just need to repent of it. Maybe you need to pray for greater trust in God's sovereign rule in your suffering. And I want to invite us to pray together in that this morning. But also, maybe you're just facing a, a, a trial now that you just can't get past. Something new, perhaps. And you're suffering and you're hurting. We want to give you the opportunity to pray together for those of us who are suffering and hurting. And something I didn't mention about Job's friends. 35 chapters of back and forth and criticism. They never once offered to pray for him. Now, that's really sad. They never pray for him. As, as a church, we want to come together and pray for one another in our suffering. So two things. I want us to, to have prayers of repentance and trust God in our suffering, but also want to pray for the suffering itself. And so uh, what we're going to do, we're going to have elders and deacons come, come forward, and, and there'll be people standing at the back of the room. And if you need to pray about something with somebody, come, come and join one of these, these couples. Um, if you just are with your family and you want to pray together, just turn and pray. I know it's weird because we're like all sitting in perfect little rows, but like we can get up, we can move around, we can turn, and we can pray with one another. If you know someone who is struggling and suffering, get up and walk across the room, go and pray with them. We want to take this opportunity to pray together. And so I'll invite you to, to stand together. It makes it a little easier if we stand up. And if we need, if you need prayer, please don't be shy. Come and gather together and seek the Lord together.